Welcome to Talking Work, the employment law podcast by Use Laboris. In each episode, we invite a different guest to discuss what's happening in the world of work. If you're an HR professional of any kind, this podcast is for you. Hello and welcome to this discussion of Use Laboris Diversity and Inclusion Group. I'm Lucy Lewis and I'm a partner at Lewis Silkin in the UK. And I'm delighted to be joined by Dawn Siler Nixon from Ford Harrison in the US, Yvonne Fredrickson from Norban Vindig in Denmark, and Catherine Weaver from Lewis Silkin in Hong Kong. And our goal today is to share our perspectives of how the pandemic is shaping diversity and inclusion internationally. We know that the pandemic has changed the way we've had to physically work. And as the world moves slowly towards a living with COVID strategy, there's an opportunity for us to pause, to reflect and to consider what we've learned. What are the things we want to keep? What are the things that need to change? And as diversity and inclusion has become an increasingly business critical issue, it seems like a good moment to consider together what we've learned from the pandemic that might help companies meet their diversity goals. And I thought we could probably start with the most obvious thing, because we've all got used to working away from the office. And there's a a collective desire to retain greater flexibility in where we work and when we work. And probably in all workplaces before the pandemic, the significant majority of flexible working arrangements were held by women. And that created challenges, challenges that could be a podcast in themselves. But I'm interested to explore how the pandemic has changed our approach to flexible working and whether greater flexibility for everyone will address some of the barriers that women have faced. Dawn, I'm interested in your perspectives in the US and um, whether you think this idea of greater flexibility for everyone will see some of the barriers for women removed. Yeah, so thank you. I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I think that there's somewhat of a misperception that greater flexibility um, will eliminate some of the barriers that women have faced in the workplace. Um, I think that the pandemic has resulted in greater flexibility for everyone because everyone can work anywhere in most circumstances. But I think that we tend to forget that the brunt of the pandemic um, in 2020 was borne by women to a much greater extent than men. Um, And some of the hardest hit sectors in the U.S., particularly for COVID-19, were Um, in industries where women were a higher total of the population than men. So in the U.S. economy, women dominated sectors like hospitality and food service and personal care. And so when those industries shuttered their businesses, there was a significant amount of women who lost their jobs, and some of them really lost their jobs um, for good. And so when we turn to remote work, you know, generally women took up a greater share of the household chores than men. And with childcare facilities were barely open during that time and schools moving online, there were lots of barriers that were created for the careers of mothers as the childcare fell predominantly on them. So I think even though we've seen some significant improvement in um, female employment in 2021 and 2022, um, there's still that deficit that in the U.S. particularly that we're fighting um, over because we're still about 4.3% below the pre-pandemic employment rate for women. So I think that with that backdrop, women are better at personal interactions. They're better at juggling many things. They're better able to focus on work um, by being at work. But the amount of pressure that's been added to women 
in the workplace is really creating new barriers to success as it relates to burnout and some of the things that we'll be talking about. So flexibility um, is not as flexible as you might think because uh, everyone is on camera for Zoom calls. Um, that's being a heightened approach that we're seeing for employers. There's no space to actually get work done or get work completed that's talked about because there's this Zoom fatigue. Um, and sometimes being in the office is more easy for women to gain momentum towards advancement, especially given the fact that women typically uh, languish in these middle to low level management positions that they need to be seen, they need to be heard, they need to be engaged by other people. So flexibility is great. Don't get me wrong. When it's true flexibility, it allows for women to do things, more things with less time. But um, I really see it different in women's growth opportunities in the workplace. I think the barriers are just going to be different going forward. Thanks, Dawn. Rebecca, is the position the same in the UK? I think it's very similar, actually. Um, And I really echo some of the things that that Dawn says. Flexibility is brilliant um, for many working women. This new way of hybrid working that's emerged from the pandemic, allowing us to rethink where we can work from and and how we structure our day has been a very good thing but i do fear that the impact is that um women may just be continuing to take on a disproportionate amount of the caring commitments um whether that's childcare or for other family members and as a result um where we have flexibility um where we may net out is that women are just doing more and more And I think particularly as we all return to the office, um, even if that's a more hybrid way of working, um, which seems to be being favoured by many sectors in the UK, women are more likely, I think, to be taking up the opportunities to work from home because of caring responsibilities, perhaps than their male colleagues would. And I do see that possibly setting us back in terms of opportunities for women in the workplace um, arising from things like visibility. So, you know, they will just be less visible in the office as compared to their male colleagues. And will that lead to an issue with perception? For example, if you're not coming in, coming into the office as much, does that demonstrate a lack of commitment? And all of those things could lead into fewer opportunities for things like promotion. Um, so I think there are problems that we need to address. Um, in the UK as well, there have been some discussions around whether to cut people's pay if they don't conform to certain minimum requirements of office attendance. Now, that's you know very much in the embryonic stages, but I think it could be a reality that that sort of approach could disproportionately impact women um, and, and be potentially discriminatory. So we have a real risk of a culture change here, I think, where whilst we embrace everything um, that flexibility offers, we risk overburdening women Um, to the point where we are going to see issues potentially with burnout or whether the new normal, if you like, is just women end up taking on more and more. Thanks, Rebecca. And we talked a little bit there about some of the things that we sometimes hear described as proximity bias. Being nearby means that you have greater advantages. Is it the same, Yvonne, in Denmark? Thank you, Lucy. Yeah, it definitely, also from the Danish perspective, it's a very interesting question. And um, I, I believe that we, we do not yet know, we do not have the final answer to the question whether the pandemic will, on the long run, have a negative or positive impact on gender equality. 
But there's no doubt that on the face of it, it seems to be an advantage to have an improved possibility to work from home, improved uh, possibility of, of flexible working. And, and uh, surveys in Denmark also shows that 33% uh, more women than men have actually experienced an improved work-life balance during the pandemic due to the increased work-from-home arrangements. And that's, of course, again, on the face of it, positive. But also, um, it turns out that, that women prefers 12% more work from home than men do. So on the face of it, again, it seems to be an advantage. But I agree with Rebecca that it is a double-edged sword. Uh, and the question is whether it will improve gender equality in the long run or whether it would just reinforce the women as the primary caretaker in the family. And the, the survey I mentioned also indicates that this actually may be the case. Uh, one of the questions to the participants in the survey was, when they work from home, where do you perform the work? Do you perform it from uh, a home office or do you perform it from the living room or the kitchen? And it turned out that more men than women performed their work from their home office, a separate room in the house, whereas women, more women than men performed their work from the living room or the kitchen where the rest of the family was uh, as well. And I think that's very interesting because it shows me at least, or indicates at least, that it is maybe just uh, reinforcing the woman as, as a primary caretaker of, of the family. And uh, yeah, so, so definitely something that we need to focus on in the future as employers to, to ensure that, that this will not just reinforce the inequality that we already have. Thanks, Yvonne. Um, Kat, you come at this from a slightly different perspective, um, obviously in Hong Kong, but looking more generally at the clients you're speaking to across Asia. I'm interested in whether it's a similar sort of perspective. It's interesting because I think APAC is quite different in many ways to the US, the UK and Europe in that flexible working really was not a thing, was not a popular topic up until the pandemic. Most APAC countries don't have flexible working laws. And the idea of companies asking employees to work from home was largely unheard of. So in some ways, the pandemic has you know, certainly opened up the possibility of flexible working for women in a way that just wasn't there before in Asia Pacific. Um, but I've got to be a bit cynical about this. And I am speaking largely from a Hong Kong perspective here, but I'm sure there are various other APEC countries that would fall into this bucket. But I think I sadly feel the positive lessons learned from the pandemic around flexible working and treating colleagues in a more human way may not necessarily be continued um, in a lot of the jurisdictions and certainly not in the more traditional family-run companies that you find in greater China. You you will see that probably in the larger international corporations in APAC, but um, but not necessarily in, in the, the vast majority of companies, um, which are the SMEs and the family-run ones. So I would say that the fact we had a pandemic and we did have to work from home for periods, and of course in APAC it wasn't like it was in, in Europe and um, and the UK, and I think possibly the US too, where there was never a, a work from home mandate. Um, we were working from the office quite a lot of the time. We finally had to think about the option of flexible working, the option of working from home. 
and um, it was a novel thing. And I think that meant that it, women then thought they could actually in the future apply and say, I want to work flexibly, I want to work from home um, for the first time. And companies couldn't just re retort as usual by saying that's not possible. So I'd like to say in theory, it's going to have a net benefit for women in uh, Asia Pacific, just because there was not the option of flexible working before, and which meant that women largely had to make a choice between being a career woman or looking after family. And now at least there'll be an option of having the discussion around flexible working, working from home, because um, we've sh shown it can work. Um, but uh, as I say, I fear that that may not be particularly long term, because every time we've finished a wave of COVID, in, in Hong Kong at least, everybody has return to the office immediately. So uh, so, so we'll see. I, mean, I think the issue around flexible working in places like Hong Kong is because there's a huge value placed on presenteeism, there's a long working hours culture, and there's this ex expectation that women will return to work quickly after having children because there's domestic workers available to look after children at low prices. Um, and also working from home is not necessarily being seen as a benefit in Hong Kong because lots of people live in small cramped apartments often shared with others and they've got short commutes so working from the office is often seen as a better option so that's kind of historically why um, it hasn't really been that popular but I think now that there is the option of doing it and people have seen that it does work and as long as we don't have to do homeschooling again I think it does open up the possibility of uh, women having more chance to build careers and not feel as though they have to make these choices between one or the other and hopefully then advance further in their careers too because um, flexible working is now a conversation that's open. And I said at the beginning that we needed to look at the good things that we had come out of the pandemic and also the things that we might want to change. And, and one of the things, and it's related to flexibility, that people have found difficult is this, this blurring of the lines between home and work. It comes out of being able to be more flexible. And we know that's really impacting people's well-being. Um, Yvonne, the EU has, of course, been very vocal on the right to disconnect. Do you think we need a right to disconnect to improve diversity? Is that what you're seeing in Denmark? Uh, no, <laughs> because in Denmark, there is no right to disconnect. So, so we haven't picked up that trend yet here in Denmark. I would say that what would worry me a bit here is that we have just new studies released that we are seeing or, or what we are facing right now is that young people are increasingly struggling with mental problems and especially young women actually and it seems that the pandemic has increased these problems and the surveys indicate that working or studying from home may push this trend further in the wrong direction um, and there is a general consensus that the inability to switch off from work as well as the lack of social interaction with colleagues may also increase mental problems. So I definitely expect that this is something that we will need to discuss in more details or, and, and, and have a lot more focus on in, in the future. But, but right now, it doesn't seem as if we are going that way right now. Um, uh, so, so it's going to be interesting to see what will happen. And Dawn, from an outsider's perspective, we, we tend to think of the US as having a long hours work culture. Has there been any discussion about the right to disconnect with you? Yeah. And, and you know, in the US, there has been some discussion about the idea of a right to disconnect, um, although there's not been any 
uh, laws that have been established to secure that right for individuals, you know, at work. Um, you know, I, I think that it's not just that the pandemic that's fueling this right to disconnect trend, because as you say, we do have this long work hour uh, philosophy and work really had become even more of a fluid concept in the U.S. before the pandemic because of of technology. Um, but there's so many reasons why law supporting the rights of employees to really turn off work makes good sense for workers and it's practical for employers. And some employers are implementing their own policies, you know, without having a law um, that allows employees the right to um, disconnect. Because I think as someone else said, burnout is a real problem that we're facing. And so, you know, one of the, the uh, issues that supports this idea of um, a right to disconnect is the the theory of work-life balance, right? And it really supports the concept of true flexibility where employees know that they don't have this never-ending work schedule and then they have a degree of control over when their day stops and when their day starts and when they can get work done. And that will and has been shown, at least in the employers that I've worked with, um, to implement some of these policies, that it will prevent this burnout that um, we've talked about because it's going to allow the employees to have that rest time so that they can bring their best selves to work and do their best best work. And, you know, there's all types of medical studies that you can look at that that speaks to a well-rested employee is usually more prepared. They're more productive. You know, they have better ideas. But if they're not ever truly off the clock, um, they're never going to have a chance to unwind and and it could lead to more mistakes and poor quality of work and more disciplinary actions. So there is some movement towards um, a right to disconnect, but there's been no laws that have been implemented um, to secure that right or to to require that right for employees. Catherine, my guess is from some of the things you said about culture of presenteeism there is still across much of APAC that the there might not be such a lot of discussion about the right to disconnect, but I'm interested to know whether that's right. You're right, um, certainly not in Hong Kong, um, but interestingly a bill has just gone in in the Philippines um, on the right to disconnect. It's called the Workers' Rest Bill and um, really does go to the, this concept that we're talking about. So it'd be a law requiring the employee or preventing an employee to work outside of work hours. Um, they can't be required to travel outside of work hours. Um, they shouldn't have to respond to any telephone, email messages, et cetera, outside of work hours. And if uh, and they can't be punished if they don't respond to communications um, during rest hours. So the Philippines has identified this. And in fact, in the, the blurb um, that was in the presentation of this bill, it was all around the pandemic and this reliance on technology and everybody just being on call all the time and the need to put this law in place to ensure the welfare of employees. So, um, so the Philippines is definitely thinking about it. Outside of the Philippines, not so much, but, that, but let's, let's think about this more holistically, not necessarily pandemic related. There have been measures being put in place in recent years in certain countries such as South Korea and Japan, where they've got a, got a real problem around working hours culture. And they've, you know, so much so that there's actually, there's, there's words specifically for death from overwork. 
Um, and so in those countries, they brought in limitations on overtime hours and bringing in annual stress tests for employees. So there's a recognition already, um, pandemic aside, that there's an issue in APAC around this, this um, working hours culture. But discussions around disconnection from work are not there widely across APAC. Um, and I think I think we should just look at the positives slightly on this. I think with the, with the right to disconnect, there's a you're presupposing that there's a start time and an end time of a day. And what we've had with the pandemic is, is as you put it, blurring of those lines. And some of that blurring can be positive. Um, it can mean, and, and thinking about women again, or those with caring responsibilities, it means that you can put a wash on during the day or pop out to pick up your kids. And, and there's a bit less pressure that you have to get everything done before 4.30 to get out the door of work to go and get the children. And there's probably a little bit of less guilt as well of not being home enough because you are home. Um, so I think that there are some positives if you can manage it effectively that this blurring has created, um, that you, you, know, you don't have to do things in these confined boxes in these times that we used to have. So um, we have to be careful around it, though, too, around the mental health aspects that have been talked about, the burnout, etc. But I just wanted to say that it's not all negative. And we have to see the, the positives as well as the negatives around this. Thank you. Um, Rebecca, we tend to look with some envy at our Irish cousins who are considering this. Um, obviously, we're not currently considering it in the UK. But do you think it would have a positive impact on diversity if we did do that? So I think that's an interesting question. As you say, there is no legal right to disconnect in the UK. But we already do have some protections um, for employees in place that cover the sorts of issues that we're thinking about here. So We've already got the limit on the 48 hour average working week, um, although in many industries, it's fair to say that people are essentially required to opt out of that. And we also have general health and safety laws, you know, the employer's duty to protect the health, safety and welfare of their employees. I definitely think um, that there needs to be change, but it strikes me that change is already happening now without there being a legal requirement to do so. So what we're seeing quite a lot of with our clients in the UK is a real focus on employee well-being um, in many ways, not just to ensure a sort of a happier workforce, but to sort of revise approach to benefits. So where perhaps you might previously have offered things like season ticket loans, where employees were commuting a lot. Now the focus is more on well-being, health, um, you know, ad hoc days, leave, those sorts of things. Um, but we're also thinking about things like encouraging people to take annual leave, making sure that they understand that um, the company that they work for does not have an expectation that they will respond to things out of hours. And we see a lot of people, you know, creating email signatures that set out at the bottom, you know, what your working hours are and that there's no expectation to respond. All of those are really good things. But my concern is also that we may pay slight lip service to things. We need to practice what we preach and it's one thing to say don't feel pressurized to be on call all the time and ensure that you take um, good breaks it's another thing to actually ensure that happens in reality um, and my personal view is will it improve diversity the key question here I'm not sure it will expressly improve diversity I think this is a retention issue across the board for everybody um, People are experiencing burnout, irrespective of, of, of their gender. 
Um, but I do think that for women, particularly wanting to go into more senior roles with increased work pressure, I do think that if we don't properly address this, it could result in longer term diversity issues, because I think that with this new flexibility comes additional work and women may just simply opt out and say this is too much. So I think I'm not sure it's going to increase diversity over the long run, but I think it's something that we really, really need to focus on for everyone in the workplace to ensure that we're not creating real issues with, with mental health and you know, short-term careers where people are choosing to go elsewhere for better work-life balance. Thank you, Rebecca. The final thing I wanted to, to use this um, conversation as an opportunity to explore is disability, because we know across the world that disabled people are statistically less likely to be engaged in the labour market. And certainly in the UK, improving access to employment opportunities has been a goal of successive governments. Um, Rebecca, perhaps coming to you first, because I mentioned um, UK government there, do, do you think the pandemic is going to help to improve the number of disabled people in active employment? Lucy, I'd like to say I hope so at this point. I am a little bit cynical, though. Um, and the starting point really being that in the UK, we absolutely know the pandemic disproportionately impacted disabled people in the UK as compared to non-disabled people. Um, and that's because primarily... Um, you know, statistics have shown that they were more likely to be placed on the furlough scheme that was in place in the UK um, and then ultimately were more vulnerable to being made redundancy at the end of that period. So it's been a really difficult time and I think we're starting on the back foot. Um, we know that disability pay gap in the UK has widened during the pandemic and is is not looking good at the moment. So do I think that um, the pandemic is going to improve the number of disabled people in active employment? I think for those with a physical disability, where, for example, um, they might have struggled to commute um, on a daily basis, I think the pandemic's been a good thing because enabling people to work from home and more hybrid working might give access to far more roles for those people where they can work from home or at least partly and that might remove some barriers to employment. The general emphasis on flexibility could help but I think where somebody has a disability that isn't a physical one or you know maybe a, a mental impairment I think there's no suggestion the pandemic is going to improve that and when we particularly connect that with what we've just been discussing about increased pressure on people feeling on call and this leading to people um, you know struggling with stress stress and mental health issues I do have concerns that this is going to potentially hinder rather than help whether any of this has any tangible impact I think really remains to be seen so I'll, I'll finish where I started which is I remain hopeful but I'm not sure D Dawn do you, do you share those views um, when it comes to looking at this position from a US perspective Yes. Yeah. I, I, when, when Rebecca was talking, talking, I was thinking about the same thing. I really do hope that this will create more opportunities with people um, with disabilities to work remotely. Um, but some of the things that we're seeing really point in an opposite direction. Um, many of the people with many of the people with disabilities um, who were working in 2019, they were working in industries that were most affected by the crisis. And so 
you know, when those industries dried up, you know, there was no work for them. And, and many of those industries just simply have not opened back up at all. Um, some of them have just started to open up in um, the U.S. And with the tight labor market that we have here with the uh, very difficult time that employers are having um, hiring workers and retaining them, I think that that is going to fuel some modest gains for individuals with disabilities. Um, but the challenge is, is that the workers that employers are often seeking right now are for entry-level positions that need to be working on site. And some employers are either unwilling or unable to make the investment that's needed to onboard individuals with disabilities, even though our U.S. laws require them you know, to do so. And so there's still multiple barriers for disabled individuals entering the workforce, including that discrimination in hiring, that lack of reasonable accommodation that I was mentioning, and the absence of health insurance benefits that employers are now not offering oftentimes, the transportation challenges that Re that Rebecca mentioned, housing hurdles, um, even, even the fact that there could be an elimination of their, you know, social, um, a federal social safety net program benefits that they get in the U.S., like Medicaid or some of those options would be cut off when a disabled individual, you know, comes to work and they're making too much money. Um, and that doesn't even account for the fact that you have these intersectionality issues where disabled individuals might also be LGBTQ workers. And so I think that I'd, I would come back to, again, what, what Rebecca said, too. I mean, there's some opportunities for disabled individuals as a result of the pandemic, but there's still a lot of challenges. But I do remain hopeful that there will be opportunities because of this deficit in um, employees that are available to work. Thank you, Dawn. Um, Catherine, I'm interested in your perspectives across APAC. We've seen on a number of these questions, there's been some differences. Is this an area where there's also differences? Uh, no, actually, I think that I, I agree largely with Rebecca and um, Dawn on this one in that, in theory, the pandemic should improve the number of disabled per people in active employment. But I think in reality, it probably won't have a huge impact. And I think also in Hong Kong in particular, it'd be very difficult to obtain any statistics on this. And in fact, not just Hong Kong, I think across APAC, it's quite difficult to get stats because these kind of things aren't really monitored and recorded in Asia Pacific. Hong Kong is a particularly challenging place for somebody with physical disabilities uh, because of the way it is. It's very hilly. It's not designed for anybody with any kind of... Um, physical disability that affects their ability to walk and um, it's rare to see anybody on the streets with a disability whether it's you know on a in a wheelchair or with any kind of ostensible learning disorder as well you don't really see disabled people in in the workplace either and that's despite there being strong protection in place for disabled persons under the disability discrimination ordinance and this you know, prevents employers from discriminating against disabled persons in applying for work and during employment that's in place but in reality you just don't see that many disabled people in the workplace. So you'd think with the pandemic um, and with Hong Kong just not being easy to travel around, you would then have more opportunity if you were physically disabled to be able to apply for work or feel more comfortable applying for work where it's stated that the work can be done mostly or entirely from home because that means they don't have to travel around. 
So again, I hope there are more disabled people out there applying for work. And the pandemic could also, again, in theory, benefit those with mental disabilities, such as, you know, agoraphobia, stress, anxiety, in that they may feel more comfortable applying for jobs that don't require being physically present in the office. And they may perform better without having the stress of being in the workplace and having to work with others. There are some APEC countries that have legislation in place that requires employers to actively employ a certain number of disabled employees, and China is one of them. Um, in China, and it varies across the um, different provinces, um, so subject to local regulations um, that are different, but around 1.5% um, of the workforce should be disabled in China. And if companies fail to meet that standard, they have to contribute to a, an employment security fund for the disabled. But what that means is quite often that the companies just choose to pay their fine. So in terms of the law's benefit on disabled persons, it's not particularly effective. And I don't think necessarily that the pandemic will help that and, and make those companies in China think, well, OK, here's, now's a good opportunity to think more broadly around how we can engage disabled people to try and meet that um, criteria we're supposed to meet. So um, so yeah, I think I'll, I'll, I'll go full circle like the, the previous two speakers and say, in theory, yes, definitely, um, it, it should Thank you. Thank you. And that's really interesting, particularly about um, the position in, in China. Yvonne, coming to you to finish and share your thoughts about this as an issue and the position as it currently is in Denmark. Yeah, thank you. We, we don't have any surveys uh, on, on this yet in, in Denmark, uh, but the Danish Disability Forum announced already in early uh, or the summer 2020, um, and that was in the early period of the pandemic, that they expected the increasing number of work from home arrangements would have a positive impact for employees with disabilities. Um, and, and it is definitely needed. Um, studies shows that Danish employers are generally reluctant to employ employees with disability and especially employees with mental disabilities are really struggling to access the labor market. But there are uh, a lot of interesting initiatives on this at the moment uh, and and hopefully successful experiences with working from home arrangement may help push things in, in the right direction. Um, but again, yes, uh, time will show. We are, we are still hopeful. Um, and, and we see also at the EU level, there's a push from the EU Court of Justice at the moment uh, with yeah already a recent decision from the beginning of February uh, where they are really focusing a lot on the obligation for employers to accommodate disabled uh, employees. So I believe that there will be some push from a number of levels in the coming years. Thank you, Yvonne, and thank you, everybody, for joining us. It's been a, a fascinating conversation um, as I said at the outset, it's explored some of the things that have been positive about the pandemic and some of the things and challenges that um, we need to consider how we change for the future. If anyone listening wants to find out more about this discussion, um, you can visit www.usethaboris.com and visit the Diversity in the Workplace pages. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Talking Work, but we'll be back very soon with more insights from our guests from around the world. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. You can also visit usaboris.com to access all our content resources and tools.